Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. As this show moves towards its 200th episode, I've had a fantastic time reconnecting with friends who appeared in some of the earliest episodes. Back on episode 37, I had a chat with the documentary filmmaker Yujiro Seki to discuss his in-production film, Carving the Divine. My conversation with Yujiro led me to befriending Japanese Buddhist art scholar and curator Michael Van Hardingsveld, who has appeared on this show as a guest on three occasions and as a guest host on episode 175. My friendship with Michael led me to chatting about gyotaku fish printing art with Dwight Huang on episode 92. This podcast overlaps with Yujiro's own Carving the Divine TV YouTube discussion show, where we share guests like the Nibiru artist Rima Fujita, Lions Roar editor and picture book author Andrea Miller, Rinzai Roshi Mado Moore, as well as my own appearance on Carving the Divine TV to talk about teaching and religious literacy. I share so many connections with Yujiro, and it's just fabulous. So it is a pleasure to have Yujiro back on the show for episode 181. In our chat, we discuss his Carving the Divine documentary in great detail. We go into depth about the life of Bushi's sculptors, and we had an absolutely wonderful time hanging out again after a while. I spoke to Yujiro from his home in Japan, where we navigated a roughly 13-hour time difference. If you want to follow Yujiro's work and his, um, his film career, you can find him on Twitter at CarvingDivine or at CarvingTheDivine.com. And you can find me on Twitter, as always, at Classical underscore Ideas. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with return guest, the filmmaker Yujiro Seki. Yujiro Seki. Welcome back to Classical Ideas. Thank you for having me, Greg. It's a delight to have you back on the show. Um, For those who don't know who you are, can you just give a brief introduction of who you are for the audience? Well, uh, I am a Japanese filmmaker who made a a documentary about the Buddhist sculptors of Japan, and which is a 1,400-year-old history. But we're not going to talk about the history in this documentary. Uh, We're going to talk about the the people who actually do the practices of Mm. carving Buddhist statues in the 21st century. Excellent, excellent. Well, we've spoken about this a little bit in the past. Um, When we spoke in early 2018, you were still working on your film, Carving the Divine, which I know now has been completed Um, But before we dive into the film, I'm also curious about another project, which you do. Uh, You, I do a podcast, you do sort of like a, like a video um, YouTube uh, talk show, discussion show called Carving the Divine TV. And I was recently a guest, so thank you for having me on your show. But your show is an interview format aimed at education. Can you tell me a little bit about your side project show, Carving the Divine TV, um, for anyone who wishes to to learn about it, so they can keep that in the back of their mind as we move forward in our conversation today. Of course, of course. Yes, uh, Carving the Divine TV uh, started as a kind of selfish project. Mm. So, you know, what I mean by that is when I completed the documentary, uh, to me, 
uh, it was a beautiful accomplishment mm -hmm. to me. I was like, wow, I was able to capture the life of an uh, unknown world yeah. uh, to the Western people and uh, even uh, to the people in Japan. So, you know, I was so excited about it. And, uh, you know, I told everybody this is what I did. And everybody thought I was crazy. Everybody thought, you know, why are you so thrilled about the movies about the, the movie about the statues? Mm -hmm. And I thought about it and uh, nobody knows about the, this culture. And if nobody knows about it, why people think it's important, mm -hmm. you know? So uh, I realized in order for people to appreciate this culture, we have to take it by step. So one of the uh, reasons that I started doing uh, Carving the Divine TV is to introduce the basic concept of Buddhism and the history of Buddhism. Because ultimately, uh, the uh, movie that I want to promote is about Buddhist art, mm -hmm. the tradition. By the way, you don't need to be a Buddhist or, you know, uh, you don't intend to be a Buddhist, but, you know, in order to understand the cultural background and why it's important, yeah. I thought it would be important to uh, introduce uh, something about Buddhism. Uh, so we start from that uh, India, of course, and zooming into uh, Japan, Japanese Buddhism. Because, uh, you know, Japanese Buddhism, is, uh, Buddhism are off, is often not so understood by uh, many people around the world. So, uh, yeah, I started doing this and uh, eventually I started inviting like uh, practitioners from a uh, uh, Buddhist tradition, especially Japanese Buddhism. And eventually I uh, invited a Buddhist uh, art scholar to talk about the Buddhist statues. Mm -hmm. So, in the end, it comes all together and, uh, you know, uh, enhance the understanding of this art. That was uh, my original intention. Yeah. But uh, as I, you know, started doing more and more, things got more uh, serious. And yeah. uh, things, uh, people, uh, more people, more serious people came. And uh, yeah, uh, we talk about something profound. Uh, at the same time, uh, it's easier for people, easy for people who don't know anything about it to understand. So this is my side project, Carving the Divine TV. It's so wonderful because um, you and I have many mutual friends, like people who have appeared on my show have also been on your show. So I've really liked seeing your show um, because you have the full video format and I have the full audio format. So it's just really cool to see people uh, who have a similar mission of like, you know, educating about basic religious traditions around the world and then going deeper and deeper and deeper into them over time. So that's what I love about your show. It's really, really a cool project. And you've had some amazing guests. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And, uh, you know, I don't have uh, any favoritism. I don't have uh, any intention to promote particular kind of Buddhism. Right. Uh, so that's why I think I can bring all the people together. Uh, because as soon as I start favoring one aspect uh, to the other, you know, my intention will change. Right. So I try to be as objective as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And that's how I approach my show too. So it's nice to hear that we kind of have that in common uh, where it's just all about curiosity and learning and, you know, seeking to expand our own understandings as we go through the show. And then as we learn more, um, our audiences can learn more too, which is so fantastic. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So let's get on to Carving the Divine, the film. Um, you appeared on this show in episode 37 to talk about this, and you already have given a brief overview that this film highlights and profiles the lives of these uh, sculptors making these uh, Buddhist statues. Um, and this is an, a fantastic film, and I've had the opportunity to see some of it. Um, and But the film is essentially on pause for the moment while the world recovers from the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you tell me a little bit about what you would have been doing this year in 2020 with the film if the pandemic hadn't happened? What were your plans this year? Well, uh, 2020 got started pretty well. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I got accepted to uh, several film festivals, including the one in Japan which is one of the uh, most prestigious film festivals in Japan. And I was very excited to be able to show the film there, but unfortunately it got canceled and the more film festivals got canceled and canceled. And, you know, I was like, uh, oh my gosh, what I'm gonna do? Mm. Uh, you know, I have to keep going with this, this, uh, uh, this path a little longer. Yeah. So ideally, uh, I would be going to more festivals and uh, uh, really thinking about how to finally distribute the film at this point, if it wasn't a pandemic. But you know, uh, life throws curveballs at us. And what happened is, uh, you know, uh, I decided to do Carving the Divine TV again. Mm -hmm. Because I stopped carving, doing Carving the Divine, Divine TV for a while because it was impossible to do it while I was doing the festival. So I just wanted to finish the, uh, my unfinished job at this moment. Gotcha. Um, so were your film festival appearances pushed back a year to 2021? If you were accepted into a version in 2020, was that just delayed for the following year? Uh, most likely not. Many of the festivals, uh, uh, they are just canceled. Oh my gosh! So, are they going to do again? Are they going to do again in 2021, though? Yes, but I'm not sure if they're going to choose my film again. That's another thing. So you have to resubmit. Pretty much, or uh, renegotiate since they wow. know about it already. Wow. Yeah, that is, uh, it, it's amazing the effects that this pandemic has. And it's like these unseen effects. Like I'd imagine that a lot of people listening wouldn't think about the world of film festivals and filmmakers and documentarians and how this pandemic and all of the canceled festivals would impact the lives of creative folks like filmmakers. You know what I mean? Of course. Yeah. Well, okay. So this film is is absolutely wonderful, um, and I know that people are going to be very excited to see it whenever you manage to, um, you know, reconfigure your approach for how you get the film distributed. Um, but you made a film about a small peek into the world of Buddhism in Japan. Um, just real quick, though, did you grow up Buddhist by chance? Well... You know, when you talk about that, we got to talk about uh, how the situation is in Japan. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we are uh, mainly very secular. Mm -hmm. We are very open-minded. So this means we don't particularly practice uh, religion, but we are, we are affiliated to religion. Mm -hmm. 
So like, uh, for example, we say we are Buddhist, but do we know a uh, lot about the Buddhism? Well, we just need a temple when uh, somebody dies. Gotcha. So uh, in that sense, yes, I guess I was a Buddhist, but you know, and my father was a, uh, is a Buddhist furniture maker, Buddhist outer maker. Uh, we grew up in the environment. We heard about a lot of stories, but at the same time, we are not really conscious on uh, if we are Buddhist or not. Mm. Well, that's really interesting too, because I know that in the United States, people classify themselves as a certain religion based on what they do, but people don't really realize around the world that, you know, people in different countries can be like multiple different religions at once. They can, they don't really realize the way that, you know, things are practiced differently. So I think that seeing inside the lives of religious practitioners in other countries is a profound experience for many American listeners who see religion as going to church, sitting in a pew in a, in, on Sundays um, and things like that. You know what I mean? Like the religious expression around the world is so different. Yes, yes. It's not a black and white, you know, mm -hmm. for example, like uh, Japan has a long uh, tradition and the history of Shinto. Mm -hmm. And the Shinto always lived side by side uh, with the Buddhism. Of course, there are some exceptions in the history, but we're not going to talk about that today. Mm -hmm. But the point is that because of this flexibility, Japanese people have a tendency to uh, accept religion from uh, different cultures, you know, uh, like uh, Christianity, Islam, and uh, uh, Judaism, you know, we, we don't really uh, discriminate so much. We accept it, you know, it, 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 if we, what is right religion, what is not right religion, that's not that uh, question that we ask. That is so interesting. I love that you said that because, you know, thinking about what's right and wrong is often a very uh, binary black and white choice. But uh, it's nice to hear when um, other countries don't really see it that way. I, I enjoy that perspective myself. So, okay, so we, we have these, uh, these profiled sculptors in this film doing something called bushi sculpting. Um, I'm curious if you can just say what bushi sculpting is and then how you first discovered it as a person yourself. Well, bushi sculpting uh, is a 1,400-year-old uh, tradition in Japan. Uh, it, came, it, it was set uh, like in the middle of the 7th century or so. Uh, it came from China or Korea. And uh, initially, it was just imitation of Chinese or uh, Korean counterpart. But around the year 1000, like, uh, uh, the famous sculptor, uh, Joshua, uh, showed up and uh, started like, making uh, something very Japanese, uh, mm -hmm. Japanese Wayo style. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, along with other reasons, you know, Japan, Japan like, got uh, did not have a, a strong political tie with the China anymore and such. But uh, yes, from, now, from then, uh, Japanese uh, Buddhist uh, statuary style developed. And uh, modern day sculptors, uh, what they basically do is to keep the tradition from the ancient time. Around the uh, uh, year uh, 1200 or so, you know, Japanese statuary style 
is established. Mm. Of course, there are a lot of exceptions and all this. So you, when we talk about the, the generalization, well, we always have to talk about the exceptions. But you know, the idea is to keep the tradition and to make the icons that are familiar to us. It's not really a self-expression, not like a, a Michelangelo's or David. Right. You know, so that's a, a Buddhist uh, Bushi tradition. Excellent. So my film is about the 21st century uh, Bushi tradition. Yeah. How did you discover the artists and the sculptors that you profile in the film? How did you discover this, uh, um, you know, as a, as a documentarian? Okay, yes, I forgot to answer that. I'm sorry. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes, basically, I grew up in this environment. Um, which means basically my father was a, a Buddhist furniture maker, altar maker, uh, as I told you. Yeah. And ever yeah. since that I was little, I was surrounded by Buddhist objects, furnitures, uh, altars, uh, statues, tablets, and uh, all sort of good stuff. But when I was a little, I didn't think of it. It was right. just a family business. Yeah. And you know, when I was in high school, uh, I got into filmmaking and made my first film and I really loved it. And I decided to go to the United States and uh, study cinema because at that time I thought, you know, uh, to uh, be a good filmmaker, I had to go to the United States. So I, uh, as I was going through my journey of uh, uh, filmmaking, after graduating from a university, uh, working in a film industry in Los Angeles, uh, I met different people uh, from different cultures, and I saw myself as a Japanese for the first time in my life, which is very weird. Yeah. Because, you know, uh, in Japan, everybody is Japanese. Right. So we don't really consciously think, oh, I'm Japanese. Right, right. But when you go to the United States, you know, people see you as a Japanese. Yeah. And you, know, you, you see different people and the different cultures and different art. And uh, I saw the environment that I grew up in uh, was somebody, something that was very unique for the first time in my life. So that's how I started thinking about doing uh, Carving the Divine. Uh, at that time, of course, I didn't have a name called in the divine. But uh, so I talked to my father and my brother and everybody that I know. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, they uh, gave me some connections. So it was very easy for me in a way uh, because uh, it was already everything was already set up. And, all, uh, you know, uh, I had a. Uh, knowledge, some kind of knowledge about this culture uh, before. And I thought, you know, this is something that I can only do it. You know, it's not like anybody can walk in and uh, capture this beautiful tradition. So, you know, everything kind of came together. And yeah. uh, I just decided to uh, embark on the journey. Well, it's so amazing because I was thinking as I was watching this film, I was like, how do filmmakers gain access to the subjects and the people that they that they film? I mean, I couldn't just walk in and be like, hey, I want to make a documentary about you. Do you know what I mean? Like, it had to be you. It had to be a special person who has a connection to that world already. 
otherwise, if I walked in there with a the camera and said, hey, I want to make a documentary about you, they would just say, beat it. You know what I mean? Get out of here. Um, so that's so cool. That backstory is so important, you know? Hmm. Appreciate it. And also, you know, uh, as you probably saw, uh, you, you saw the fire uh, ceremony, ritual, yeah. right? Yeah. So inside of uh, uh, the area, uh, pray, uh, prayer, praying area, you're not supposed to go inside unless you're a monk. But I was be able to go inside because of the connection. Uh, Amazing. So, yes, you know, basically I was meant to make this. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, well, where, where did you film this? Because I know that you're in like a studio, like a, like a bushy studio essentially with like a team of sculptors. Like where in the world did, did you film this? Well, uh, we go back and forth between Tokyo Prefecture uh, Toyama Prefecture and Guma Prefecture. Okay. So it's not only uh, in one spot; people move around. Yeah. Yes. Do you do you travel like how do you do you travel on trains or in cars? Like how do you get all your gear from place to place? <laughs> it depends. Sometimes I took a train. Sometimes I took a bus. And sometimes I was fortunate enough to uh, get a ride. Excellent. Excellent. Well. Um, you know, were you readily accepted by these sculptors when you were making this film? Like, was there any conflict at all or were they, did they just completely accept your presence? Well, any film you make, there are many, many conflicts, I think. Mm -hmm. So uh, this film was not exception. So, you know, they are doing the serious work. Uh, so, you know, if the guy is just shooting what they're doing all the time, uh, they feel uncomfortable, of course. Sure. So initially, they're kind of wary about it, but I was there so much, so they finally accepted. They just let it, uh, let it be. Excellent. Well, yeah. and, you know, as an American English speaker watching this film, so this film is entirely subtitled in English from Japanese. I was curious about the translations. Did you personally do all of the translations for the subtitles yourself? That's a good question. So there are two parts. Initial translation, of course, I had to do it uh, by myself. Mm -hmm. I got to get the main point across. But unfortunately, uh, you know, I don't speak English as a first language. Mm -hmm. So I had somebody super competent, uh, you know, who's been friend with me for a long time from a, a university, a University of California, Berkeley, mm -hmm. uh, English major, and a very excellent writer. So he was able to uh, retranslate it into a language that, Western English speaker can identify and understand it better. Excellent. That's really cool um, because it reads very smoothly as a viewer for myself as well. And I found myself so captivated by the images that sometimes I forgot to read the subtitle. So I would have to re I would have to rewind and like watch what I missed in the terms, but because the visuals are so powerful as well. Um, but, you know, in the, in the film, there are these many different forms represented in the carvings. And, you know, people think about Buddhism and they think of the Buddha. And if you know a little bit more about it, you might think of like wrathful deities like Fudo Myo. Um, what are some of the represented deities that you learned about during the filming that maybe were new to you? Well, again, 
we are kind of grew up in uh, this culture. Mm-hmm. So it means uh, we, are fa- we, we are familiar with somewhat these deities. So, you know, uh, it's hard to say what I knew and what I didn't know, uh, especially during the time that I was filming, uh, I was not so conscious on uh, what this uh, deity represents and all this, because that, that's not the ultimately the most important thing. So, uh, for example, you know, there's a part that uh, Master uh, talks about the uh, different uh, deities and what they uh, represent. But at the same time, uh, yes, I knew something about them. Like, uh, you know, for example, uh, you know, uh, there's a Emma statue. Mm-hmm. Emma is the gatekeeper of the hell. And uh, when I was a little, I was told, you know, if you lie, when you die, uh, the gatekeeper of the hell is waiting in front of uh, in front of the gate. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he's going to, uh, take your tongue out if you lie. So yeah. and I was scared of this guy, but you know I understand it, as a Westerner, uh, maybe uh, uh, people are not uh, familiar with this deity. So you know the, these kind of things are everywhere in this documentary. But yeah. what I didn't know about, which I uh, learned about it later, is uh, symbolism of these statues. Mm. Like uh, for example, uh, you know. There's a uh, 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 one statue called Lemuhe Kanon because he has a you know Kanon is a Bodhisattva. Bodhisattva is the uh, uh, something that you know uh, he he or she's going to be a Buddha in the future, but she delay, delays being a Buddha for the time being to save all the creatures in the world. That's a Bodhisattva. Excellent. So this Bodhisattva has a eleven head. Yeah, and I didn't think about why they have a eleven head, and uh, you know later uh, I realized again uh, this has a many stories, and uh, some people might say this is right, this is wrong. I'm not gonna talk about what's right or wrong, but one I can't say uh, you know ten eleven head represents uh, stages of a bodhisattva path, so. Ten stages of Bodhisattva is a path is a bottom one, all the different faces. And the top one, uh, it's a Amida Buddha, is the one that, you know, finally reaching enlightenment. So that's a very interesting. You know, Absolutely. That's know. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that because, you know, you go into it as a filmmaker unaware of what you don't know. And then you right. learn something new and you're like, oh, how fascinating. I'm so glad I got to have that experience where I learned something new while I'm making this project. It's, it's wonderful. I love that. That's my favorite part about doing this show is I never know what new thing I'm going to learn. Okay. So I want to talk about a little bit about the, um, the master-student-apprentice relationship. So there's a captivating scene in the film where a young man in a suit is being interviewed about becoming a bushi, and it is translated as being a profession. So is bushi more of a profession and a career path as opposed to a spiritual endeavor? Well, again, uh, in the past, I don't know. Oh, interesting. 
it could be more spiritual path than uh, Korea. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Bushis were uh, basically the government uh, hired Bushi to commission uh, uh, many statues. Uh, nowadays, uh, you know, P uh, Bushis have uh, individual like workshops and such, and uh, uh, you know, if you don't uh, get a commission, uh, you know, you're out of work and uh, you cannot feed yourself. Mm -hmm. So it's a career, so they will make you anything that uh, uh, what you ask for, but at the same time, to be able to make truly spiritual art, of course, there has to be some kind of a understanding about the spirituality, but the skills first. Mm. If you don't have a skills, you have nothing. So that's Excellent. the idea. Yes. Excellent. Well, I'm curious about who, who buys the work of a Bushi. Like, or, so you just mentioned that they'll make you anything. I, I cannot imagine that these are cheap to purchase. Um, are like works curated and specifically made to order by the person who purchases the Bushi sculpture? Or do the Bushi just make whatever they want and then sell it? Well, uh, traditionally speaking, uh, it's a commission based. Okay. If you want something, you ask for a Bushi to make one and they'll customize the statue for you. So okay. that's a traditional sense. Of so course, there are many people who make many statues. Uh, also, like a Bushi is constantly making their own artworks because they want to uh, make their own collection. So uh, it's not easy to answer this, but then at the same time, uh, mainly what they do during the daytime is uh, they make statues for the customers. Excellent. Well, and I, was, I, I thought about your example of Enma a few minutes ago, and throughout the film, there is a custom-made Enma head which the bushi sculptors make and i was curious like do almost all bushi sculptures end up in temples and shrines around japan uh no oh interesting tell me more uh of course there are many statues end up in temples mm -hmm. but at the same time uh, japanese people have a long tradition of uh housing the uh, statues in their houses. So for example, I told you about uh, my father being a Buddhist automaker, mm -hmm. Buddhist uh, furniture maker. Uh, we say it, it's a butsudan. So uh, in the butsudan, uh, many people put statues. So, you know, it's integral to Japanese culture. So it's not only temples, but you know, uh, many uh, individuals have a, a, a bushy statues. Mm. Well, and what's so interesting about the film as well is that in the film, at one time, one of the bushy sculptors says, you should try to market your, um, your work abroad as outside of Japan as well as inside Japan. And that got me thinking about some of our mutual friends, like in American Zen, like, uh, you know, like Mado Moore, for example, like who has a, a monastery in Wisconsin. And I was thinking like, wow, I wonder if any of these Bushi sculptures um, or like, for example, your father's uh, Butsudan altars, if they would wind up in like American monasteries as well. Does that, does that make sense? 
of course, it's possible. Uh, but when it comes to furniture, I think the smaller ones, it's easy to uh, export. But the big ones are very hard to export. Mm. <laughs> but gotcha. I know that many uh, people, uh, even personally, who want bushy statues. Yeah. I mean, I want one, you know. I was like, whoa, I want one of those. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, if you want one, so I can find you somebody who can do it. <laughs> wow, amazing. It would probably cost me a small fortune as well. Um, tell me a little bit about the flow of the movie. Do you see this film as having, like, distinct sections? Like, what was your editing process like? Well, editing process was very difficult. Incredibly difficult. I had a, a 12, 12, 13, 14 gigabytes of footage. Uh, it's a, it, it was a collection of five, six years of uh, uh, my hard labor, mm -hmm. visual labor. And again, it is a very complex, profound culture. And I didn't want to tell a simple story if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So simple story means often people say there's a girl, apprentice girl in the beginning of the movie. Right. And you, know, you want to see her from the beginning to the end, but we don't see her that much. We right. see her a little bit like in the, toward the end, if you notice her or not, but you know, uh, the film is, was not about her, but ordinary, what filmmakers do is to uh, focus on one person and follow this person till the end. But I decided to uh, go through the films by stages. You know, there are uh, beginner novices, and there are like, uh, intermediate, there's a master, and there are, uh, there's a grandmaster. Uh, in this way, people can get more richer I mean, richer experience. People can get a richer experience. And uh, also, uh, the protagonist is almost like a guilt. Mm. And, uh, you know, I think for Westerners, you're not used to uh, watching uh, something that doesn't have a definite protagonist. Sure. But the Japanese culture is a very collective culture. So people work together. So in that way, the film also represents the culture itself. Excellent. Well, I loved this idea. So let's focus a little bit on this grandmaster, Korin Sato, a master, a grandmaster of Bushi. Tell me a little bit about like, because he's kind of like the figurehead of this small group of Bushi sculptors that you are profiling and, and featuring. Tell me a little bit about the Grand Master, and then we'll break our and then we'll break down the rest of the guild. Okay, okay. Uh, the Grand Master uh, Master Saito is a legendary bushi, and he was originally uh, uh, carving a different kind of a uh, thing. He was a uh, carving panel, two dimensional panel, and. You know, he was really good at it. And he really loved what he was doing. But around the age of 30 years old, he went to Kyoto and saw uh, Buddhist statues, legendary statues, ancient work of uh, uh, like uh, masters. 
And it, he was like, oh my gosh, I want to do this. Mm. And, you know, he decided to leave everything behind and uh, decided to uh, enter into the bushy world. So that's how he started. Uh, he's a, one of the few people who can do panels and the statues at the same time. Excellent. Very few people can do both. So who, who were his like students? Like, tell me a little bit about his lineage of apprentices that he's trained over the years. Oh, so you would say you, you want to talk about the, uh, his masters or students? No. Well, oh, um, well, who did he learn from? Did he, was he an apprentice on Bushi at the age of 30? Like, did he have to retrain to do Bushi when he was 30 and left behind his old profession? Uh, yes. Uh, it, you know, he was doing uh, two-dimensional art. Panel. Okay. He had to do a three-dimensional Buzuzo, Buddhist sculptures. So there's a, there are masters in Kyoto called uh, Sorin Matsuhisa and uh, Hori Matsuhisa. Matsuhisa, yeah, I, I cannot even say Japanese. <laughs> 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 so, uh, yes, uh, these are legendary uh, masters. And uh, yeah, he wanted to learn from the best of the best. Excellent. So, you know, uh, the. Uh, uh, Hori Masuhisa uh, is a father of uh, Sori Masuhisa. And uh, uh, he, in his lifetime, he was said he did like a 5,000 or 8,000 Buddhist, Buddhist statues. Wow. But, but, you know, when people ask him about, uh, hey, you did so many statues, and uh, he says, oh, it's not the numbers, not important. You know, I just did so many, so I don't care how many I did. So. Mm -hmm this kind of a uh, incredible character. Excellent. Well, okay, so then uh, Korin Saito, um, the grandmaster of Bushi featured in the film, has a few apprentices who have become masters themselves. So tell me about those masters that you feature in the film. Oh, that uh, uh, Master Kong, uh, Master Koke, and all this, right? Yes. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. Uh, those people are uh, the student of uh, uh, Master uh, Saito. And uh, yeah, uh, again, initially, I was heard that you know, they could not stand the training. Training is very strict. Um, but you know, uh, slowly, uh, they realized uh, there was a reason why uh, training was very strict and the you know, master Saito yell at them all the time uh, because this is kind of tough love in mm -hmm. Japanese uh, uh, culture. Uh, you know, often nowadays, uh, Western people think, oh, this is uh, too much, this is bullying, you know, uh, you gotta treat students with love and compassion, no yelling and bullying. Uh, I, he I hear that all the time with, uh, from everybody. But if you uh, think, Differently, uh, apprentices have a very short period of time to learn the craft, three to five years. Mm -hmm. And during that time, if they are not paying attention, if they are not working hard, uh, if they don't master uh, their craft, they won't be able to become a bushi, professional bushi. So 
masters often they don't want to yell at them uh, yell at the students and uh, you know uh, masters want to be nice to the students but you know in order for uh for them to really care about the student they have to be strict so that's kind of culture that we are talking about yeah well and in the film the masters are quite hard on the apprentices and i found myself thinking the all of the exact things that you just mentioned, like, wow, this is really hard work. And the, like, this seems cruel in some parts. Um, but at the end, you know, the masters do acknowledge the fantastic results that their team produces. The masters do show signs of, you know, love throughout the film in between the hard uh, pressures of training. And so, you know, I, I noticed that where there's like a dynamic of like love in some parts, but then very hard, very strict training. Um, were you, what, what, did all of that seem very natural to you whenever you were watching it? Like, were, were you surprised at all by the strictness? Well, not at all. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, you know, one way or another, we experienced that in Japanese culture, but this particular culture is extreme. I recognize that, mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, uh, people in Japan do not really think this is something unique. This is an interesting thing. So when you when I show the film abroad, people get shocked. Yeah, like wow, this is crazy, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> but for Japanese people, yeah, that's kind of normal in a, a craftsman's world. Yeah, I understand that. That's the reaction. Uh, that people get. So I know that there's a, a movie called uh, Jiro's Dream Sushi. Yes, I love that movie. Yes, that particular movie, I often, people w from Western world often say, uh, oh, this was uh, amazing how Jiro was uh, so strict and he was so perfectionist and he, you know, he's just an uh, amazing artist and all this, right? Mm -hmm. But for Japanese people, yeah, I'm sure there are people like that everywhere. That's kind of, you know, this is, this, this is. A <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I find it very interesting. Of I course, everybody respect Jiro. Of course, everybody respect Master Saito. But this old way of uh, uh, transmitting the knowledge to students is nothing new. So, so interesting. For Japanese people. So, yes. Well, and earlier you mentioned the difference between like some more Western cultures, which are a little more individualized and Japanese culture, which is a little more collectivized. So teamwork among the Bushi sculpting team, the guild, seems to be of the utmost importance to, accomp to accomplish uh, uh, and finish the very complicated pieces that you feature in the film. Um, tell me what you learned about the team dynamic because it was so interesting seeing one person make the aura and one person make the hands and another person make the body. I mean, it, it's a truly a team effort. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, you know, often people say this is a work of uh, uh, unke, kaike. Like, you know, for example, legendary uh, uh, Bushi uh, mm -hmm. for the ancient time. So, you know, most of the Japanese people know Unke and Kaike. And, uh, you know, 
when they say this is work by Unki and Kaike, what they often mean is not only made by Unki and Kaike. It's made by uh, his team. So, you know, like in the in the documentary, I know that you know I don't want to spoil too much. Sure, the sure. But you know, a master says, "Oh yeah, if you do it by yourself, it's probably going to take a year." Yeah. But you know, if you work together as a team, you can make it, let's say, three months, four months, five months. You know. Awesome. So yes, the teamwork is very important. Uh, you know, I mean, that's why uh, masters. That's one of the reasons why masters take apprentices to work for them. Mm-hmm. So it's a win-win situation. You know, apprentices can learn from the masters and the, you know, masters can get a labor out of a, uh, apprentices. But, you know, the thing is that uh, you said, uh, you know, it's this person work on hand, this person work on heads and all this, but, you know, it's not all one person working on certain things. It's not true comfort belt style. So it's almost like a, a, sometimes this person work on head, sometimes this person work on legs. So there are stages of the making statues that only masters are allowed to do it, mm. which we don't talk about so much because it's a more secret, right? Excellent. I mean, we talk about it in the movie a little bit, but yeah. You know, uh, yeah so yeah, I hope you got the general idea. Absolutely. Well, Yuji, this has been um, such a cool conversation. I love, I love this opportunity of being able to see the film and then talk to you about it and then bring this amazing um, you know, craft into the awareness of all of the listeners of Classical Ideas. Um, can you just give people a sense of where to find you online if they want to go and discover some of the, uh, the clips you have put out uh, and things like that? Like, where can people find your work if they want to follow you? Well, the best way to find me is www.carvingthedivine.com. Uh, there, uh, you can be directed to many uh, of the things that I worked on. Uh, you know, you can uh, find the uh, articles that I published. You can find uh, 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 trailers. And, uh, you know, you can find a group that I created, uh, a Buddhist statuary a, a discussion group. And we, you can find a blog about how to appreciate Buddhist statues. And even, you know, I have a study guide for you to study about the study Buddhist statues. So if you go, once you go to the website, uh, you can uh, find all the information and also, uh, of course, my uh, YouTube page, uh, Instagram, uh, Twitter, and Facebook, and all the jazz. Excellent. Well, Yujiro Seki, uh, documentarian, filmmaker of the fabulous Carving the Divine, and creator and host of Carving the Divine TV. Thank you so much for taking time to come back on Classical Ideas and chat with me about your work. It's just a delight. Thank you so much for having me. I know you're a very busy person and uh, it means a lot to me that you watch the whole Carving the Divine and uh, we finally had this discussion. Thank you so much. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. 
You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast. Thanks so much for listening.